Well, this morning we are continuing our series looking at the church. So if you want to take your Bibles just very quickly and look, flip them over, open to 1 Thessalonians, we will be there in just a moment. But we're continuing our look at the church. What does the Bible have to say about the church? How does the Bible define the church? We've talked about the priorities of the church in regards to her purpose and her calling. We've talked about how she's to function. And we've begun in the last several weeks looking at, how, uh, looking at the ministries of priority within a church. Last week, we began with the most important ministry of any and every church. And that is the ministry of prayer, of, of preaching. The church is to preach the gospel and to uphold the preaching of the gospel. Today we come to look at another ministry of priority, which is prayer. The church should be a people of prayer and they should prioritize prayer in both an individual and a corporate sort of way. In a private manner in each individual Christian's life, but in a corporate manner in the life of the church as a whole. We are to be a people of prayer. In church history, there was a man named George Mueller. Some of you know his name. Mr. Mueller was born in September of the year 1805. After his conversion, he was known and is remembered for his prayer life. He devoted himself to many great works of God and was used by God in mighty ways. But he's known for the prayer journals that he kept. Very detailed records of the prayers that he prayed and the answers that God rendered to him. Mr. Mueller in his life built five orphanages, cared for over 10,000 orphans, had 117 schools in which he educated over 120,000 students. In today's equivalency, he had Millions of dollars passed through his hands in his ministries. And never once did George Mueller ask for any money. Mueller recorded in his prayer journals that every time he had need, he prayed and asked God to meet the need. And every time he prayed, God met the need. One simple entry in one of his prayer journals records this. One morning... There was no food left in the whole orphanage. But Mueller still gathered the children around the table and gave thanks for breakfast. After praying, the local, local baker walked in and gave the orphanage enough bread to feed everybody. And shortly after the baker left, a milkman walked in and donated milk to the orphanage because his cart had broken down nearby. His journals are filled with thousands of such instances in which Mueller exercised faith by asking God for provision and God provided. Later on in his life, George Mueller said this, The great fault of the children of God is they do not continue in prayer. They do not go on praying. They do not persevere. If they desire anything for God's glory, they should pray until they get it. Oh, how good and kind and gracious and condescending is the one with whom we have to do. He has given me, unworthy as I am, immeasurably above all I had asked or thought. Mueller's example is encouraging to the heart of Christians because Christians know we ought to be defined as a people of prayer, aren't we? That is our calling. That's a, a, a chief defining mark of who we are and therefore a chief priority of every church. Not only should prayer be practiced by every church and by every Christian, it should be prioritized by every church and every Christian. Now, it's no secret God's people often struggle to pray, don't we? We do struggle, we can struggle, and the reasons vary. Sometimes it's pride, sometimes it's ignorance, sometimes it's laziness, 
Sometimes it's a season of unbelief. We struggle with that very thing which God has blessed us with that we might know Him. We struggle with that very thing which ought to be a defining hallmark of us as God's people. We struggle with that very gift in which we are allowed to commune with our Heavenly Father. But we don't have to struggle, do we? Indeed, the Scriptures are filled to the brim with reference upon reference and encouragement upon encouragement and expectation upon expectation of what prayer is and how God's people are to be a people of prayer and the extreme benefits of seeking God and being with God in prayer. Let's look at just a few this morning to set our perspective in the right direction. Starting in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. These first few you will know almost instinctively. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. At the end of Paul's letter, he's encouraging these believers. And he says, pray without ceasing. Verse 17. I have a few bullet points to leave you at the end of this letter. And among them is that you should be people who pray constantly, continually, without ceasing, never giving up, as Mueller put it, persevering in prayer. Pray without stopping. He'll repeat it again in verse 25 of 1 Thessalonians 5. Brothers, pray for us. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, a very similar remark. Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer. And then he adds, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. In a moment, we're going to define what prayer is, but that verse helps us in our understanding. Even at the beginning, prayer is an action. It's not inaction. It's not a passive discipline. It's an active discipline. Paul says, be steadfast in prayer, continuing in prayer, faithful in prayer, persevering in prayer, being watchful in it. Standing guard, actively working in prayer. In fact, he talks about a man named Epaphras in this letter. In verse 12 of chapter 4, Colossians 4, 12. Notice Epaphras' description. He is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus. He greets you, always struggling on your behalf in His prayers. That you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you. How has Epaphras labored for these brothers and sisters in his home church of Colossae? He's worked hard by struggling in prayer for them. Active. Working for them in prayer. Keep flipping your Bible to the left. Pages to the left. Philippians chapter 4 verse 6. Another very similar reference. Paul says, to these Philippian believers, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Be constant in prayer, be persevering in prayer, steadfast in prayer, and in everything in life, lift it up to God in prayer. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18 Pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Romans chapter 12, verse 12. Another very similar exhortation. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Examples of prayer in Acts chapter 6, verse 4. The apostles call the church to elect seven among them who are of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, who can carry out the duties of ministry because, verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. The Apostles, the church, gather together and they devote themselves regularly, daily, to prayer. Luke 
chapter 6 and to the ministry and life and teaching of our Lord. Verse 12. Jesus Himself exemplifies praying. He goes to the mountain and He prays. And Luke tells us, all night He continued in prayer to God. Chapter 5, verse 6 of Luke. That's the wrong reference, so ignore that one. I can skip. There's so many more. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 through 9. Luke chapter 11. And on and on and on and on. You get the point. You get the picture right. The Scriptures are filled to the brim with callings for God's people to be a people who communicate and converse and relate to Him in prayer. And yet, we so struggle, don't we? We struggle in prayer. And that is because prayer is not natural. It's not something that just happens to us in a moment. It's contrary to our flesh. It's something that must be developed as we will talk about in a moment. For now, I want you to know that the sheer number of references, too many for us to have any time to look at today, the sheer number of references are incredible evidence to the value and importance that God Himself places on His people being a people of prayer. God deems prayer as important, as valuable, even as necessary. Yet, it is largely mysterious to most church-going people I believe it to be the most practiced, misunderstood discipline there is. Most of you are sitting here in much agreement to this point, right? We know we should pray, and so we do it. But we don't really know how we should pray. And we certainly don't find ourselves praying the kind of prayers we see in the Bible. So today, I hope to highlight to you the importance of prayer by defining it for you. And then after defining it for you, I hope to show you what it means for our lives as a church and as individuals. But let me lay out at the very beginning of the, of the sermon what the point actually is and should be boiled down to. And this is most important for you to understand. The point of the sermon today is not to pray more. The point is to love God so much that you can't help but pray more. And there's a vast difference. Do not walk away today thinking, I have to pray more. Walk away today thinking, I must love God more to the point that I must meet with Him in prayer. I cannot continue on without meeting with Him in prayer. That is the point. Don't confuse it. Don't confuse it. And so it's with that foundational understanding we echo the disciples in Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Lord, teach us to pray. Let's attempt to define it. Now in one real honest sense, Prayer is a mystery, and it's supposed to be a mystery. If we consider just its nature for a moment, it can't help but be mysterious. It is finite human beings communicating with the infinite God of the universe. A God who transcends creation, transcends us. He is greater than even our best thoughts about Him. And in some regard, and in some spiritual fashion, He has made a highway to Himself. A highway that He calls His people to travel frequently. He calls us to prayer. And that prayer is mysterious. And yet at the same time, 
many of God's people unnecessarily suffer from a lack of understanding of prayer. And what I mean by this is that it is mysterious, but not as mysterious as we want to make it. It is much more simple than we want to make it. Much more rewarding than we want to make it. Let's first begin by looking at the different types of prayer that we find in the Bible. The first one, I'll give you five of them. The first one is what I think is is most often ignored. It is a prayer of praise. We are to praise God when we pray to Him. The Psalms are filled with prayers of praise. Almost every chapter in the book of Psalms includes some form of a praise in prayer to God. If we look just quickly at Psalm chapter 117, I picked this psalm very deliberately because it is only two verses long. It is a cry of praise to God, a prayer of praise to God. And it says, Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, all peoples. For great is His steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Our prayers are to look much like that psalm. We are to cry out in praise, attributing to God all the worth that we can muster based upon what He's revealed of Himself in His Word. We are telling God when we pray how wonderful and glorious we think He is, even while confessing we know Him to be greater than what we can articulate. God's people, at the very least, must be people who praise Him in prayer. Relationally and personally praise Him. Secondly, the second type of praying that the Bible identifies is a prayer of supplication or extending requests to God for ourselves. It is the most common type of prayer. We have no problem praying those sorts of prayers. In fact, we have largely made prayer selfish in that regard, haven't we? It is not a good sign of spiritual health if our prayers are only about ourselves. If we only go to God with our own needs, then we are only partially praying. Yet at the same time, God tells us quite clearly in His Word, you ought to be bringing your needs to Me. One of the most greatest examples in my mind is in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, where Peter tells us, cast all your anxieties on God. For He cares for you. How do we do that except through prayer, right? Lifting our anxieties, lifting our needs, lifting our requests to God. In fact, when we lift our own requests to God, we are expressing both dependence and faith in God, aren't we? We're expressing that God, I have a need and you're the only one who can meet this need. And God, I trust You to meet it as You see fit. Such expressions glorify God. A former pastor named Ronnie Floyd, he's now the president of the Southern Baptist Executive Committee, he once said, prayer occurs when we depend upon God. Prayerlessness happens when we depend upon ourselves. At the very basic foundation, we are to be expressing our dependence upon God in prayer, but also our trust that He is good and will answer according to His will and wisdom. Thirdly, the type of prayer we find in the Bible is a prayer of thanksgiving, which I'm convinced is way more important than the vast majority of Christians realize, and certainly more than we practice. In Romans chapter 1, you remember we looked at it a few weeks ago, one of the indictments that Paul issues to the lost world is that they don't honor God or give thanks to God. Thanksgiving is of the utmost importance because it expresses that everything we have comes from the hand of the Creator. God is the source of all things. And everything that we have, especially the good things we have, come by His grace shown to us. 
And when we express thanksgiving to God in prayer, we are giving credit where credit is due. God, You have given me my children. You have given me my home, my car, my clothes, my food. It is not for some ritualistic reason that we pray before a meal. When we pray before we eat food, we are acknowledging that every morsel of bread that we will ever ingest comes by Your good and gracious hand, God. Thank You. Fourthly, the type of prayer we find in the Bible is a prayer of intercession. A prayer where we pray for others, for the needs of others. We intervene for others. It's the most loving form of prayer we can render. And certainly, brothers and sisters in Christ ought to be praying for each other regularly, right? We ought to intercede for each other regularly. We ought to be lifting each other up before the throne of God regularly. But the Christian's work of intercession does not stop just with our brothers and sisters in Christ. It extends to all people. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul tells Timothy this. He says, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Listen to this. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What is Paul saying there? He's saying God's people ought to be a people who pray on behalf of the whole world. Leaders, poverty-stricken people, the unbeliever down the street, the co-worker who's going through divorce or pain or this, that, or the other. God's people are, are to intercede on their behalf. Even to the point where Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 and 44. Jesus says in His Sermon on the Mount, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. There's a former minister named Richard Wormbrand. He's former because he's passed on and gone to be with the Lord. He was a pastor in Romania during the era of the Soviet Union. And many of you know his name. He wrote a book called Tortured for Christ. And if you want your passion stirred to endure hostility... Read that little book, Tortured for Christ. He recounts in there unspeakable tortures that he went through and that he witnessed in Soviet Union prisons. Many I won't ever repeat publicly. The one thing that's telling and, and impactful about that book is not just the faithfulness of brothers and sisters to endure torture, tortures like that. But also their ability to love their captors and torturers. And he has more than a few examples in his book of those who torture Christians becoming Christians themselves because Christians prayed for them. There is glorious power in intercessory prayer. Why? Why in the world would God expect us or call us to be a people who pray for other people? Even to the point of praying for those who persecute us. Even for those terrorists who are beheading our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. Why would God dare call us to lift up on their behalf requests 
and plead with God on behalf of their souls. Why does Jesus do it on the cross? Why does Stephen do it as he's being stoned? It's because we are a people who have had the love of Christ put into our hearts. And the love of Christ is not a worldly love, is it? It's a love that transcends persecution and it's a love that extends even into the darkest nook and cranny of the world. In our prayers, we are reflecting the heart of Christ. For the way that we pray, the things that we pray about, how we pray, on and on. Now, Fifthly, the fifth type of prayer we find in the Bible and the most needed type of prayer for you and I is the prayer of confession. God knows all things all the time. And yet, God tells us to confess our sins to Him and to confess our needs to Him. We see Him do this at the very beginning of the Bible. At the very first sin with Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, God comes into the garden after Adam and Eve have sinned and they're hiding and He asks them, where are you? But God knows all things at all times. They're not hidden from His sight. They have to reveal themselves. And once they reveal themselves, and it's apparent that they're shamed by their nakedness because of their sin, God says, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Is God ignorant of what has happened in His own garden by His own creation? Absolutely not. What is He doing? He's providing the first sinners who have corrupted all of creation an opportunity to confess their sin to Him. And why? Because God has made it to where great peace, great liberation comes in confessing your sin to Him. So much so that on the other side of the Bible, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, He makes this promise that if you confess your sin to Him, He is what faithful and just to forgive you of all your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. At the beginning of the Bible, at the end of the Bible, God calls His people to confess their sin to Him. Because in confessing your sin to God, you are finding liberation deliverance, and even forgiveness in Christ. Our flesh says, I have to clean myself up before I come to God. I have to get my affairs in order before I attempt to seek God. I need to atone for my own sin. I need to do some kind of work or do something so that God will let me into His presence so I can pray about this, right? No, God says, come to me in real honest confession. Just as I asked Adam to do, just as I promise will render to you the result of forgiveness, confession is a much needed type of praying for God's people. So we have those five things uh, praise, thanksgiving, supplication, intercession, confession. But those types or forms of prayer, they still don't really define for us what prayer is like. Or exactly how to go about it. Or exactly what it is. To do that, I want to turn your attention to Hebrews chapter 4. If not the most important, it is certainly one of the most important passages on prayer in all of the Bible. And prayer is not even in it. But it is strongly implied within it. And it certainly depicts what happens and takes place in prayer. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, we come to find that praying is a part of our salvation. It's both a fruit of salvation and a benefit of salvation. What I mean is, if you are saved, you will be praying. You'll be a person of prayer. Maybe not a good prayer, but you will be a person of prayer. And you will have and feel and find the need to be in prayer. And you will enjoy the benefit of prayer. 
And we find that in this salvation that we have, that we are able spiritually yet literally to draw near to God. So I think we can also define prayer not just in these types or these forms that we've looked at, but also in a literal drawing near to the throne of God. Look in verse 16 of Hebrews chapter 4. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is why I take that verse, just, just so you can see my hermeneutics here. This is why I take this verse and make it a verse about prayer, because there's a specific time referenced at the very end of it. A time of need, which does imply on one hand that we can continually draw near to the throne of grace and salvation. That is a benefit and prerogative of the Christian in Christ. But it's also a moment by moment continual drawing near every time we find ourselves in need. And people, we are creatures of need. So verses 14 and 15, we we have this beautiful recounting of Christ. He's a great high priest. He's passed through the heavens. So we hold hold fast our confession of Him in verse 14. Verse 15, we find the characteristics of this perfect, beautiful, glorious, great, eternal high priest. He is one who is not unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And He has brought us to God in verse 16 so we can draw near to the throne of grace. Prayer. And this is really where we begin to see its beauty and its importance. Prayer is a literal entering into the presence of God. Is there anything more mind-blowing? Maybe not for you at the moment because you have taken it for granted. But consider yourself for a moment. Consider the sins that have been wrought by your hands even just this morning. The sins that have passed through your heart and the sins, sinful thoughts that have passed through your mind and maybe even have come out your mouth as you've tried to wrestle your kids to get to church. Not a moment of a day goes by where you, in your actions, in your desires, in your behaviors, don't disqualify yourself from the presence of God. There's not a moment of a day that doesn't go by where your own, not just the acts that you do, but the very disposition of your sinful nature in your soul. Don't disqualify yourself from being in the presence of God. Because though born again, your flesh is still very much alive within you, isn't it? So to think that I can at any moment, at any day, any time of the day, in any place, enter into the presence of God is the most profound thought your mind can entertain. And it is the entire culmination of your salvation. Because you have, and I have, disqualified myself from ever being in the presence of a holy, perfect, righteous God. And yet, through Christ, the audacity of this verse says, draw near in confidence. And it's not a suggesting verse either. If we can take it to the next level. Not only does God allow us into His presence, and not only does God tell us to come in confidence, but it is God who secures the way in the first place and then tells us, Come to Me. This Church, it is the entire point of prayer. It is the very reason for prayer to be in the presence of God where we as His children belong. We don't belong in this world anymore. Pilgrims we are. Aliens and sojourners and strangers. 
where we belong now is with God. And we do not have to wait till we die to be there. By His immense, immeasurable grace, we can be in His presence now. And so you have what is the most stupefying verse in all of the Bible, perhaps, where God Himself says, I have made a way that way is through Christ for you to come with confidence to Me. Where on your own you don't deserve to be, but with My Son you belong. That's why the answer to praying better prayers or being a people of prayer, that's why the answer is not to walk away and pray more. That's why the answer is to love God. Because you will not grow in the discipline of praying just by putting in your mind that I need to pray more. But when you come to consider the glorious gift that Christ has guaranteed for us to be with God and the gracious extension of His arm calling us to come to Him, find mercy, I want to give it to you. Find grace, I want to give it to you in your time of need. I have immeasurable grace, unending riches of mercy to show to you, to shower upon you if you will but come and ask. When you realize this God not only asks you to come, but tells you, you must come to Me. If you're going to live, if you're going to be sustained, if you're going to continue, you begin to see not only His love for you, but your heart begins to love Him in turn. And you begin to say, out of all the things I could be doing right now, nothing is more important than being with God in prayer. You see, the problem with God's people praying, or not praying, isn't just pride, or unbelief, or ignorance, or laziness. It is primarily not being captivated by the love of God shown towards you in Christ. Because when you realize the supreme privilege of being in the presence of this great, glorious, beautiful, wonderful God, and that He welcomes you in with open arms through the blood of His Son, that He paid for you to be in His presence. When you begin to realize that love, when you begin to be captivated by that love, you begin to love praying to God. So praying is an actual coming into the presence of God because of the saving work of Christ. And it is actually speaking to God which is a highly spiritual moment. But there is more to the equation. Another equally important verse is Romans 8. And I'm drawing to the end. Romans 8, verse 26. Please turn your Bibles there. Paul says, likewise, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But, the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. That makes sense, right? Because God is so far above us and great, greater than us that we can't communicate with Him in our own power, our own strength, Right? We need help. And the good news is that God Himself helps. And my mind and my heart continues to be overwhelmed by such truths. Not only has God made a way, not only has God invited me into His presence, not only has God told me this is the best thing for you, you need to come to me, but He helps me to do it. The answer is never pray, 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 pray. 
It's to turn to God and let Him help you pray, 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 pray. God helps us to pray. So we are now a people led to God, taught how to speak to God, taught how to pray to God, all by the Spirit of God. Praying, church, it is totally relational. And it is totally built on love. God loving us and us loving God. So, let me bring it all together and give you a definition of prayer. I'll give you two. I'll give you mine. I'll give you somebody else's and tell you why somebody else's isn't as good as mine. We can define prayer as a literal coming into the presence of God through the work of Jesus Christ by the help of the Holy Spirit to express praise, thanksgiving, confession, supplication, and intercession. It's a literal coming into the presence of God secured by the work of Christ Himself aided and helped and enabled by the Spirit Himself to express ourselves. Terrific. Gracious, merciful God to welcome finite, weak, sinful creatures into His presence. And base that welcome not on them or their work, but on His work. You can come into the presence of God because God Himself has secured the right for you to come into His presence. It is not based on our efforts. It is based on His love. Now, the lesser definition, still good, just missing a few elements by a man named Gary Millar. He says, in prayer, we are calling on God to come through on His promises. Not as good, but still good. We are calling on God to come through on His promise. We pray, church, based on the promise that we can come to God through Christ. We speak to God and interact with God based on the promise that He has revealed Himself and made Himself known in His Word. We are enabled to pray based on the promise that He helps us with His Spirit. And we can express ourselves to God based on the promise that He hears us and wants to hear us. Everything about prayer is to our benefit and everything about prayer is secured and guaranteed by the work and promise of God. It is a gift that we get to enjoy. So in my opinion, its importance cannot be overstated. As I've referenced, we are creatures of need, and our greatest need is God as Savior. But even after salvation, our need of God doesn't stop. We continue to need God consistently, don't we? And prayer is the only way, the primary way, that God begins to meet our needs. Let me just rapid fire give you a few more thoughts and then I want to apply it. Prayer is our purchase access to God and it accomplishes ministry in this life. Ministry will not be accomplished without Prayer. Mark eleven twenty four, Matthew twenty one twenty two, Luke ten two all tell us that prayer is necessary to do the work of God in this world. Again, Ronnie Floyd has said prayer is not inaction, it is your greatest action. All throughout Scripture, anytime God uses somebody mightily, they have been people of prayer. Number two, prayer is Enables, enhances, and sustains our relationship with God. That relationship is secured by Christ, but maintained through prayer. 
So if you are not praying, you will feel disconnected. You will feel void. You will feel even separated. We need fellowship with God and that fellowship is maintained by meeting with God in prayer. It's not some blind ritual that we do. It is our relationship with God. A real, honest, authentic relationship. I just want you to understand there are many benefits to prayer, but chief among them all is being with God. Martin Luther said, A Christian without praying is no more possible than being alive without breathing. We need prayer. And number three, prayer enables us to be obedient and to serve God and be used by Him. In John chapter 15, Jesus tells us apart from Him, we can do nothing. That certainly means our salvation, but the Christian knows that also extends to our lives if we don't go to God asking for help, praying for His glory, praying for His purpose, praying for His agenda, we might find ourselves and often do find ourselves useless. Indeed, all throughout church history, the great revivals, the great preachers, the great missionaries, the great scholars, the great churches that God has used for His glory by His grace, have all had armies of people praying. Armies of people praying. If you want to be used by God, you ought to be praying. If you want to hear God speak, it is not just a matter of show up, sit down, listen. You really want God's Word to have its full effect in your life. You plead with Him. You plead with Him for the sermon every Sunday. Speak, God, I need You to speak. Speak, God, I need You to speak. Carry Your Word by Your Spirit to my heart. Alright, a few application points and I'll be done, I promise. But I have to read one more passage. Luke chapter 18. What does this mean for us? What, if prayer is all these things and it is this important, what, is it, what does it mean for us? It first means we ought to be a people persistent in prayer. Luke chapter 18, verse 1. Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to His elect who cried to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. God tells us to be a people persistent and devoted to prayer. Number two, if prayer is this important, we ought to set aside specific devoted time to it as both a church like we do on Sunday mornings and other times, but also as individuals. A man named John Anwuchekwa says, a fruitful prayer life is cultivated by constant practice, not the comprehension of propositions. If we're going to be people of prayer, it's not just by understanding the truth in knowledge form, it's also by developing it in constant practice. And number three, we ought to encourage each other to prayer. Which sometimes means not trying to solve each other's problems, but first and foremost telling each other to go to God. And often going to God with each other hand in hand. These are the things we ought to be doing if we want to honor God with our lives, if we want to be used by God, if we want to glorify God, if we want His will and purpose to be done. Then let us be a people of prayer. But as I said at the beginning, you and I will not be people of prayer if we do not first love God. And if we are not first captivated by God. And you must be born again by the grace and mercy of Christ through the saving work of Christ to know God and to love Him. 
You must have your sins forgiven. And if your sins are forgiven, if you are a child of God, then prayer is your privilege. Don't waste it. Let us plead even now with God to make us a people of prayer. I can think of no better way, no more fitting way to end by asking you to pray. To quiet yourself just for a moment here. And ask God not just to help you pray more, but to love Him to the point that you can't exist without praying.